Let's uh, turn together to Colossians chapter 1 as we continue our endeavours to unlock the book of Colossians. Last week we considered uh, the introduction, the first two verses really, of Colossians 1, thinking about Christian identity. Tonight we will look at verses 3 through 8, Colossians 1, 3 through 8, and we'll consider Christian stability. What presents uh, us with our stability uh, as a Christian? So, Colossians 1, 3 through 8. Paul writes, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you, since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. This is the Word of God. May God have a blessing to his Word. So following his introduction, as we have it in verses 1 and 2, Paul continues, and in verse 3 he he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. This statement strikes what I like to call a very apostolic note. For Paul often begins his letters with this kind of expression. And in point of fact, Galatians is... Perhaps the only exception. When he is planning to talk to these Christians, Paul knows there are things he needs to say, some of which will be painful. But he is not just interested in telling it as it is. He knows these Christians need encouragement. So he tells them why he is grateful to God for them. He thanks God for them. He thanks God for the faith in Christ, verse 4. He thanks God for the personal trust and commitment to him as Lord and Saviour. And therefore endeavouring in the midst of his exhortations that inevitably follow in his epistles to encourage the Christians, to build them up in the faith. I'm thanking God for you. I'm thanking God for your faith. I'm thanking God for your love. How wonderful. 
what makes this church in Colossia church is this. I believe them to be a gospel people. They believe the gospel. Denominational labels are not nearly as important as whether the church that we are a part of is a gospel church. <coughs> what do I mean by that? Well, a gospel church, for me, proclaims life. A gospel church proclaims freedom. A gospel church proclaims forgiveness of sins. All of these in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossae was a gospel church. Paul continues to encourage the Colossian brethren by focusing upon at least three things, as I want to identify them in these verses uh, 3 through 8. He continues his encouragement of the Colossian brethren by focusing upon their love for one another. Verse 4. Brethren, there are a growing number of professing Christians who really trouble me. These are those who say they belong to Jesus, but do their best to avoid other Christians at all costs. These are they who claim to be children of God, but who never want to be anywhere near the very people they are going to spend eternity with. They trouble me. They're increasing in number. These Christians who isolate themselves from the church. They trouble me because how do you know that someone is a genuine Christian? Well, clearly, a genuine faith in Jesus Christ produces a love for the people of God. It produces a love for fellow Christians. How, therefore, can a genuine child of God argue that it is all right for them in Christ to isolate themselves from the flock? It troubles me. A genuine Christian has an inherent love in Christ that flows through them by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Verse 8, it's alluded to there by Paul. He says, of the, the love in the Spirit. So even though naturally speaking, within the flesh we find it difficult, if not impossible, to love those within the confines of the church. There really is no excuse. Because in Christ we are filled with the Spirit. It is in the Spirit that we love. Arguably, we don't have to like the brethren, but we must love them. Because what else can the indwelling Holy Spirit do 
but love those for whom Christ gave his, his life. For all their faults, and the Colossian church had many, they are commended for their love for one another. This is like a, a new affection for a group of people with whom at one time we would not have been seen dead with. The church. Church is meant to be the privilege of the redeemed, isn't it? Why often, why, why is it therefore often seen as, as, in so many ways, the punishment that we have to undergo? Oh, do I really have to go to church again? With that Lord? That's the mindset of many. And you think of any and every excuse to stay away. And surely if Christ is within by his spirit, they would think of any and every excuse why they, 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 they have to be there. Church has become some kind of Protestant purgatory that we have to go through before we get to heaven. That's not what it ought to be. That's not what I read in the New Testament. How refreshing it is to read of a, a church commended by the Apostle Paul for their love for one another. They couldn't just, they couldn't keep away from each other. Because they love each other. That's why Jesus wrote in John 13 verse 35. By this shall all men know that you, that you are my disciples. How? By your love for one another. Notice that this is love for all the saints. Not just for people whom we personally like within the church. Churches are not supposed to be monochrome. Designer churches full of like-minded people. They're becoming like that. They're becoming like that. People shop around, don't they? <laughs> to find a church where everyone within the church agrees with them. It's true. It's true. I don't see that in Scripture. Churches are not meant to be monochrome. Not, not designer churches full of like-minded people. We're meant to be eclectically <laughs> expressions of the body of Christ, as, as different as the number of people within the confines of the church. But we get on because we love each other. We cannot help but love each other because the Spirit resides within. And the Spirit loves the church. So these dear professing Christians, I use that word guardedly, professing Christians, who claim Christ, but avoid the Christians. They trouble me. What real faith produces is a love for all the saints, says the Apostle Paul. God's purpose through the Gospel is to produce a new community from a damaged humanity. That's why we're here. God's purpose through the gospel is to produce a loving society out of a hateful world. That's why we're here. 
It is shocking if we come to think that love in the church is some kind of optional extra, a kind of take-it-or-leave-it dynamic. As the old saying goes, people don't care how much you know they want to know how much you care. If our church here, brethren, is a bit low on the love stakes, then our church is in big, big trouble. But I think we're somewhat blessed here. Somewhat bizarrely. We love each other. Hey, if you can embrace a scouser, you could embrace anybody. <laughs> Is that not right? Isn't God good? Let me read you a wee poem that I've written. Not recently. My creative days are long behind me. But I used to write songs when I was gifted. This is a wee poem that came out of that creative era when I was younger and full of flair and passion. And, and, and that's gone. It's gone. When I was full of romance, that's now gone. Listen to this. To me, t'was not the truth you taught. To you so clear to me still dim. But when you came, you brought a sense of him. Not merely in the words you say, not only in your deeds confessed, but in the most unconscious way is Christ expressed. It is, so is it a beatific smile? A holy light up in your brow. Oh no, I felt his presence when you laughed just now. And from your eyes, he beckons me. And from your heart, his love is shed. Till I lose sight of you and see the Christ instead. Isn't that lovely? Prompted by looking at the brethren who loved me for who I am and accepted me regardless of where I was from. But the brethren in commas who avoid the church trouble me. The Apostle Paul encourages these Colossian Christians by focusing upon the love for one another. He sought to encourage them by focusing secondly upon their hope waiting in heaven. Verse 5. The faith and the love which Paul identified in verse 4 springs from hope, he says. It springs from hope. That faith, that love is not in isolation, nor can it be. It springs from hope. Literally, he says, verse 5, the faith and love that spring from the hope, what hope? That is stored up for you in heaven. 
Hallelujah. A hope stored up for you in heaven. How, brethren, can we keep going on with Christ year in, year out, beset with problems and perhaps surrounded by a less than perfect church? How can we keep going on with Christ? What keeps us motivated in the things of God? Paul says, that is the hope stored up in heaven. There's so much truth in that, isn't there? You see, people, people disappoint me. The church upsets me. Denominationalism frustrates me. What keeps me motivated? What keeps me going on? It is the hope that is stored up in heaven. There are all sorts of side benefits that come into our lives when we become, we become Christians, aren't there? We get a sense of purpose, a sense of joy, a sense of peace, a sense of happiness. But arguably we can get all these things and more by simply taking drugs. If God just wanted us to be happy, then God would simply have prescribed to us all Prozac or, or something of similar ilk. But you see, God does not just want us to be happy, he wants us to be holy. God doesn't just want us to be satisfied, he wants us to be sanctified. There is something important that we need to remember, dear friends. Whatever benefits we receive from the gospel now, and they are considerable benefits, these are only foretastes of what is to come. No wonder the Apostle Paul tantalizingly wrote the first century church in Corinth saying, what we now see as a poor reflection in a mirror, then we shall see. They are frustrating, poor reflections, aren't they? I know that because, sadly, my daughter made it to the bathroom before I, this morning. And so inevitably, when I got into the bathroom to have a shave, it was full of steam everywhere. And the mirror within which I was to shave, it was a poor reflection. Now you might think to yourself, Pastor, that's merciful. <laughs> You didn't have to look at yourself as you are. And I grant you, there's an element of mercy in that. But could I see what I was shaving? It was frustrating. And so it is. We do at least have a, a mirror to look into, says the Apostle Paul. But it's a poor reflection. It's frustrating. But then, he says, referring to our future and blessed glorious hope stored up in heaven, then we will see. And it will be glorious. Hallelujah. In fact, I won't even have to shame in heaven. How wonderful will that be? We'll all grow beards. No, no, no. How, how liberating. I hate shaving with a passion. And, and I won't have to shame. I have a new body. A perfect body. Hallelujah. The celestial body. The big deal is, the big 
payload of the gospel, so to speak, will not come until we see Jesus. It is stored up for us, for you and I, in heaven. In short, brethren, the best is yet to come. And the Apostle Paul encouraged the brethren in Colossae, saying, this faith, this love, it springs from the hope within you. The hope that says the best is yet to come. Whatever we have already received, there is a sense in which we have seen nothing yet. Please, please, my friend, don't fall for the lie that we can have it all now. We cannot. We will have it all in heaven. I believe one of the secrets of living the Christian life in a God-honoring way is to work out what is for the here and now and what is for the hereafter and be content. <coughs> Looking back, no regrets. Looking forward, no fears. That's contentment, isn't it? That's contentment. That's where the child of God should be. Having a faith and a love that wells up within us and springs up out of the hope that one day we have a place in heaven. We have a room personally prepared for us by our Saviour and Lord Jesus Christ. A room prepared personally for Doug Atherton. What a room that's going to be. They'll have some Ducati motorcycles on the walls. It's personalised for me. I'm not suggesting that's good for you, but it'll be good for me. You see, the Lord knows, doesn't he? And he's got to prepare a place for me. And after he's gone to prepare a place for me, he says, my child, I will come back. Notice there's no ambiguity in John chapter 14. No if, no but, no perhaps, no baby. My child, I will come back. And he says, what? I'll take you. I'll take that scouser to Galen to be with me. I'll show you around the room. Hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? This hope, my friends, that wells up within us no one can snatch it away. And from that hope, our faith and love well up. Thirdly and finally, he endeavours to encourage the Colossian Christians by focusing upon the growing gospel. How, how we've allowed the enemy to quash our spirit by convincing us that the gospel message is having little or no impact in these days. How foolish we are to listen to his lies. For they are lies. He is the father of lies. When he speaks, it's not but lies. But we've allowed him, haven't we, to, to quash our spirits. To dampen our determination to deflect our energies, to convince us that this is the best it's going to be. When the prophet Joel has said, in the last days, there will be blood and fire and billows of smoke, all of those manifestations, but he says this, and those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. 
The intimation is that in the last days there will be a harvest. Oh, please, Lord. But we allow the enemy to quash our spirits, to dampen our convictions and say, forget it. This godless nation is the best it's going to get. I don't believe that. I don't believe it. I refuse to believe it. Because the word of God tells me otherwise. Ah, you might say, the evidence, pastor. The evidence, the statistics. Oh, they make pretty depressing reading, don't they? Less than 2.3% of our population would be considered evangelical Christians in the purest sense. Churches are closing at, at an extraordinary and phenomenal rate. Fewer and fewer people are being trained for Christian ministry. Christian leaders are being, being depressed and, and, and a falling light flies around us. It's all depressing. It ain't going to get any better. I refuse to believe it. Yes. I refuse to be discouraged. I will only praise. And Paul encourages the brethren in Colossae and says, he says, listen, I'm encouraging you because this gospel message, verse 6, look at it. He says, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Now listen, okay, this is the first century church, but the church was considerably smaller then than it is now. Considerably smaller. In fact, beyond the confines of, of parts of Asia Minor and, and, and parts of North Africa and parts of Eastern Europe, the gospel perhaps had hardly reached anywhere at all. So how could the Apostle Paul be so, so optimistic? He says, all over the world, this gospel message is growing. It's bearing fruit. There's an echo here, I believe, of the be fruitful and multiply theme that harks back to the book of Genesis. Back then in Genesis, mankind disobeyed and brought both a curse and chaos into God's world. But now through the gospel, God is reversing that curse, which one day will mean there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Boy, if ever there's time for optimism, now is that time. Paul is confident that the gospel of Christ is growing. He's confident that it's increasing. But how is it growing? How is it growing, Paul? Well, he tells us, verse 5, firstly, it is by hearing the word of God. That is why we must preach. That is why we must gossip the gospel. Because people need to hear. Evangelism involves verbal proclamation. It involves words. I realize we live in an image-conscious age with brand names and jealously guarded logos. However, if Christians only use symbols, for instance, if we only use the cross as a symbol, if we only use the fish as a symbol, then people won't be saved. Because well, these symbols need to be explained. The gospel needs to be verbalized. It needs to be preached. No wonder the Apostle Paul exhorted young Timothy as a pastor in Ephesus, preach the word. Be prepared in season. Yeah, 
Be prepared in season when the spiritual tide is in. And when the move of the Spirit is evident, preach the word in season, Timothy, he says. But he says this, preach the word out of season. Out of season, Paul. Preach the word when the spiritual tide is out. When it seems like the, the, the spiritual dynamics are all wrong and, and miscued and, and all, ah, when nothing seems to be happening, when hearts are hard. Preach the word, he says. Why? Because it's by hearing that people will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and come to know him personally. The gospel is something we need to hear. But secondly, verse 7, Paul adds that the gospel is something we need to learn. We need to learn it. The Colossians learned it, says Paul, from Epaphras. Oh, it's tantalizing, isn't it? We don't know too much about Epaphras. Paul, Paul refers to him on occasions. But we don't know much about him. Can't wait to get to, get to know Epaphras, can you? Boy, it's going to be fab in heaven, isn't it? Won't know where to go first. Whose daughter knock on first? Moses! I've got a few questions for you, sir. And Epaphras? Well, I am keen to talk to Epaphras. Well, who was he? What was he about? Well, we don't know that much about his, his background. We know this much. He was busy gossiping the gospel. <laughs> he was busy communicating the love of Christ. He was busy planting churches. He was busy building up the, faith, the flock, discipling them in Christ. In our culture in the United Kingdom today, many say it's a post-Christian culture. I think there's some truth in that. We need to give people the opportunity to learn the gospel. That's why I'm passionate about certain programs that help us do that. Christianity Explored. A program that will help us to give people the opportunity to learn the gospel. There's Alpha, of course. There's the Y course. There's plenty of others designed to help churches like us teach people the gospel. I learned the gospel from a lady called M. Stanhope, a fellow scouser. She was a YPF, a Young People's Fellowship leader in my home church, Trinity Evangelical Church in Rain Hill, just outside Liverpool. She encouraged me to read the Bible for myself and pointed me to Jesus. Eleven years of age, I found the Lord Jesus Christ. I learned the gospel from Norman Warren. Not personally, but he was the author of a little gospel booklet called Journey into Life. He convinced me of my need to make a personal decision for Jesus. Me, I was brought up a Methodist, a good Methodist of that. Oh, yeah. I was brought up in church, Sunday school. Not always good in Sunday school, I grant you, but I was there. Uh, me who thought I knew something about church and Christianity and, and the Bible. Me who made the occasional prayer here and there. I realised I was taught that I had to make a personal decision to accept Christ. I learned the gospel from Reverend Billy Campbell, my pastor for nearly ten years. Billy faithfully preached the scriptures. 
faithfully expounded the word of God and disciplined me in the things of God and mentored me in Christian leadership. I was a snotty-nosed teenager, 17, 18 years of age. He put me in the pulpit, goodness knows why. 17. How many self-respecting pastors will put a 17-year-old scouser in the pulpit to preach? must have seen something. Goodness knows what. We shy away from that these days, don't we? We would consider such a person to be too young. Too inexperienced. But not, not, not Billy Campbell. Not the Apostle Paul. He was, he, he appointed Timothy as, as pastor of the church in Ephesus. Significant church. I grant you. Timothy would have been 21, 22-ish. Billy Campbell taught me the gospel. I learned the gospel from Dr. Colin Peckham, the principal and a whole host of faithful teachers at the Faith Mission Bible College in Edinburgh when I first began my training for full-time ministry. And I praise God for men and women like these. Men and women like Epaphras who faithfully taught me the word of God. My friends, the gospel is growing. And it is growing by people hearing the word. We must preach. We must, we must articulate. We must gossip the gospel. Because people will need to hear. And it is it's growing by, because people need to learn. They, they, are, they were taught by Epaphras. We need to teach. I'm going to finish here. But let me finish by setting you some homework. Stanley Banks was a godly man. I speak about him often because he made such an impression upon me. He was the principal of Emmanuel Bible College in Birkenhead and then became a, an executive director of of uh, Ormes International as it was then one mission society as it is today godly man and uh, I, I just devoured his ministry whenever he preached he preached without a note I could only dream of walking in his shoes expository ministry oh yes it was a biblical and Hebrew Hebrew and Greek scholar expository ministry not a note he had the unique ability of being able to Remember verbatim what he'd written down. Unique. Brilliant. And uh, Stanley Banks would regularly, when he was, because, because he was a lecturer, you see, principal of the Bible College, he would regularly set his congregation's homework. <coughs> Used to get on my nerves a little bit, I have to say, but uh, uh, I'm going to give you homework. When you get home sometime this week, doesn't have to be tonight, Take a piece of paper and on one side write down the names of all the people who have been like Epaphras to you. Write down all the names of all the people who have been like Epaphras to you. All the people who have taught you the gospel. And when you've done that, thank God for that. Many of them have probably been promoted to glory since. 
We can still thank God for that. How good God is. Well, when I think about the people he's put across my path, I think, wow, isn't God good? Then turn the piece of paper over. And on the other side, write down the names of the people God has placed in your life to whom you can be an Epaphras. And they then pray, God, help me to be an Epaphras to these people. So on the one side of the paper, thank God for those names. They're so precious. God has used those names to shape you into what you are. For his kingdom's sake. Thank God for them. And on the other side of the paper, those names. God, how are you going to help me be an Epaphras to these people that I might teach them the gospel? Bring your paper next week and we'll name names. For his glory's sake. Oh, not next week. Well, well, bring your paper anyway. (laughs) Our next study, fourth study, will be on the 5th of January then. We're going to consider, as we move on into verses 9 onwards of chapter 1, Christian maturity. Christian maturity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. And we do stop in these moments to remember those who have been a pathless to us who have taken the time and the energy and the effort to teach us the gospel. Father, thank you for that. It is therefore incumbent upon us to pass that baton on. (laughs) So help us to identify to whom might we be Epaphras in these days. In the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen. Amen.